I can't hear myself properly even. <clears throat> Good evening and thank you so much for this warm welcome. <clears throat> it always feels very good to be back in South Africa and Johannesburg in particular. I was very happy to see that, as usual, the Nigerian clock has uh, followed me here. Um, uh, no matter what appears to be the uh, horrendous uh, relationship in certain quarters, in certain quarters of Johannesburg, I think the truth is that most Nigerians still feel that emotional bond with uh, South Africa, which no incident can ever remove, no unpleasant incident. The bond has been there for a very long time, even before we all became conscious of a struggle called anti-apartheid. That bond has been there through the literature that we received from South Africa, through writers, the um, uh, original, uh, shall we say, introducers of South Africa to the Nigerian community, through even teachers like Ezekiel Pashlele, who many of you, Uncle Iske, I think you the name given him here, who many Nigerians have never heard of. They used to teach in some of the um, uh, secondary schools over there. Nigeria, in fact, was the first port of call for many uh, South Africans in the very early days before even Nigerian independence. And of course, through them, principally, I think, and through journals like the Drum, Drum magazine, which many people here, you're too young to know, you're Nigerian people. This is where, um, I was going to say, there are certain words I must avoid today because this man always uses them against me. He has certain favorite words. And if I utter them, I will hear them re-echoed later on. So I don't mention in the introduction of, um, uh, shall we say, cultural uh, uh, landmarks like the Shebin and the Skokian. Yes, I've uttered the word. I wouldn't bother with those. But the rhythm, the pulse uh, of South Africa was something which was uh, absorbed, recognized, and identified with by most Nigerians. Then came the beginning of real linkages, uh, not just South Africa, but Mozambique, the um, Portuguese uh, settler colonialism, uh, Rhodesias, etc. And the linkage became stronger and stronger as more refugees flowed from the South to the West. So the literature, the culture, the music, the rhythms were already part and parcel of Nigerian life. By the time Makariri happened. Of course, this was immediately post-independence. And we became more conscious of a real battle going on. And when I say battle, I mean physical battle. We're talking about uh, anti-Portuguese colonialism, Mozambique, Angola. We're talking now the beginning of movements in Southern Africa against apartheid. Uh, Namibia was sort of gray areas. We were never sure what was happening there. But outside of, uh, shall we say, UN uh, protectorates like Namibia, we become very conscious that the axis 
of liberation on the African continent. At one end was in South Africa, the other end in Algeria, in Algeria and the fulcrum, the fulcrum was in West Africa, Ghana, of course. Nigeria was a bit slow on the uptake, but once it started, as usual, it galloped over to Ghana. And so by the time he began talking about the frontline states, Nigeria was already, even with the conservatives like Tafawa Balewa, one of our early uh, uh, premiers, prime ministers, the consciousness of Africa, of uh, South Africa, as the battlefront was something already integral in the consciousness of pupils, school pupils, writers, artists, painters, etc., etc. It percolated through even before we finished our graduation and returned to Nigeria. At that time, we'd uh, become aware that the destination after we finished our studies was South Africa. We had no other thought in mind. Unfortunately, what interrupted this liberation front was because we realized that we had our own battles on the home front. I felt we'd better take care of that before we started dreaming of the Black International, as we called it, in uh, imitation of, of course, the war against uh, fascist Europe, the beginning of the International Brigade. All this was part of our education, informal education. But then the problems began. And we said, listen, if we don't take care of our back, when we moved south, we'll find that there is no nation that we can call our own to return to. So when writers and artists from different parts of uh, both Francophone, Anglophone, Lusophone, Meti Makarere, ideological uh, sides had already been uh, uh, reflected through, of course, the Monrovia and Algeria divisions, even in the OAU. What was happening in OAU, in other words, was already being reflected in the writing, in the interaction of writers and artists. And by the time we go to Makarere, the ideological battle line was already drawn. So when a certain, uh, between the so-called conservatives and the so-called radical, so when a certain young writer called Wale Shoyinka met his uh, Francophone counterparts representing what you might call the conservative elements in the African struggle. He didn't know into what serious battle he uh, uh, and battle waters he was jumping when he did a kind of pastiche, a kind of uh, mimic of Leopold Sarasenghor's poetry and the whole philosophy of negritude. Negritude, we thought, was just an escape, a cultural front for conservatism as represented by most of the Francophones. I didn't know what uh, Pandora's box I was opening when in the midst of the argument between the negritudinists and the non-negritudinists, I read a pastiche 
of Sangor's beautiful, elegant, leaping verses, as I called it. But we both came from the same culture, the same culture of epic poetry. So it was not difficult at all to mimic Senghor's poetry, which derived from what I like to call the leaping rhythms of epic poetry of the African peoples. The whole went in an uproar. I didn't know I'd taken on the entire Francophonie of the African continent. Then to make matters worse, I went uncoined in opposition to negritude, tigritude, siwahala. I just thought it was a quip, a little, just to say that we also have our own ideology and it's called uh, tigritude. I know I was taking on the entire scholastic world of the black, Frank, uh, the black Francophonie. I didn't know that I was diminishing the entire French academic tradition and that I was unwittingly positing Anglophone literature, culture, history, against the Francophonie. It took a while for them to forgive me. <laughs> However, what I want to stress today is that when you look at the reminiscences, you read the, uh, the, the book on Makerere, you have to understand the background. I realize that we're coming from different directions towards the same marketplace, which was liberation, just liberation. Some saw it in physical terms, some saw it in cultural terms, some saw it even in a kind of identity, a sense of identity, which was not yet totally formulated. But we were luckier, and I always tell our Anglophonie, we were luckier in one respect. We did not undergo the assimilative uh, aspect of colonialism, which the Francophones underwent. At that period, when Makerere took place, the Francophones were victims of a very deliberate French indoctrination. The Anglophone, on the other hand, the British, British colonialism felt that the blacks were brutes and couldn't absorb um, British culture, civilization anyway. So let's leave them alone. Let's take just a few people and turn them into bureaucrats and the flag bearers, uh, representatives of British culture in an indirect way. And so we were left severely alone as barbarians. The Francophones, however, already members, there were members, uh, the uh, intellectuals there, already had uh, kind of token membership of the uh, Académie Française. Whoever heard of, um, shall we say, our early poets, like Azikwe, et cetera, et cetera, being invited to become member of the British literary establishment? No. And so we're able to de develop in our own way, in our, with full confidence in African cultures. The Francophone, on the other hand, let me tell you how bad it was that sometimes to be given a visa to go to metropolitan France. 
let's say, even the headmaster of a school or a civil servant, you took a test in French culture. You were invited to the home of a district officer, the equivalent of a district officer, and that dinner was a testing point. How you held your fork, how you held your knife, how you dabbed your lip with a napkin. You were given marks for this. This was sent to Paris, whether you passed or failed. If you failed in the angle at which you held your fork and knife, you weren't going to enter. And so it became a, we were not aware of how deep, how petty French colonialism was. We were so confident in our own ways of doing things. And so we couldn't really understand what the fuss was about, this negritude. We said, we never lost our own negritude. But of course, by the time we started interacting, after Makerere, for instance, after the formation of the Union of Writers of the African Peoples, when we realized that it was senseless to have this cultural fight going on, on behalf of people who didn't give a damn about what we did, what we were, what we ate, how we clothed ourselves. People may want to see us as a kind of image of their own, either in tepid ways or in full assimilation. And so we closed ranks. It was simple, very easy. Senghor and I became the best of friends, as many of you know. Of course, uh, from, the, uh, from Martinique, I'd always stood on the sideline. He was a bit more ideologically concerned. Uh, he belonged to the school of, shall we say, Sembeneu's man, who incidentally, and this is where everything became complicated, Sembeneu's man, who was Francophonie, was so progressive in his ideological outlook that he saw the issue as a class issue, as a simple matter of decolonization. And so he, side by side with negritude, he phrased his own position as negritude ne nourrit pas. In other words, as we would say in Nigeria, na negritude we go chop, you know, to give the people food in their stomachs and then you're talking about liberation. <laughs> And so all these petty uh, antagonisms, intellectual antagonisms, the, uh, the overstatement of positions, this is what happened in Makerere. And within a few years, Makerere had been forgotten. And we now recognize that we were engaged, all engaged in a real battle for true liberation decolonization. Not surprisingly, the Liberian, uh, the Monrovian group also, I'm trying to very quickly run through how the politics of the African continent was actually reflected in the cultural ideologies of both sides. The so-called Monrovia group and the, uh, the Casablanca group, one supposed to be radical, the other, uh, uh, the other conservative, also came together, resulting after so many, first of all in OAU and eventually in AU. And so similar positions were taken in the cultural division. We began to see the real enemy as an internal one, the main, the major enemy, an internal one. Those who wanted to step straight into the departing shoes of the colonial masters. The same, only even more pernicious level of alienation. The same distancing between 
the rulers and the ruled. The same denial of human dignity, only worse, because this time the boot was on the black foot. And this is always more intolerable, because it's a kind of double betrayal after so-called liberation. And all this was reflected in the literature. We began to, and by this time, we were already accumulating more and more works from Southern Africa. Alex Laguma, um, Mazizi Kunene, uh, Lewis Nkosi, who began as a journalist, became a writer himself. They were all present, one form or the other, in uh, Makerere, Kofi Awuno from Ghana, who fell in Nairobi recently, and all began to close hands, uh, to close uh, ranks, and the literature itself was reflected in that. And if you look at these short stories, uh, you see the awakening consciousness of what I like to think of as the authentic product of colonial furnace. We're all toned in the single consciousness of the battle for human dignity. And so people are surprised when we say to one another, yes, yes, there is a kind of uh, phobia taking place on the streets of Johannesburg. It's like, yes, we've seen it. We've been through this before. And even this shall pass. And South Africa is even beginning to give us examples of what to do with our treacherous leaders. I'm not going to say more than that <laughs> right now. <laughs> but I made a statement just before I came here, uh, traveling uh, from, uh, I was in Abuja, and we were launching a new building dedicated to the fight against corruption. And I was taken round, I'm trying to say how we've gravitated from that sense of external uh, conflict to internal. There's a real serious battle now taking place. So as the head of the EFCC, that's the, it's called economic uh, fraud uh, something. So anyway, anti-corruption. Just a few days ago, I said, where's the presidential wing of this place? I want to see where you're putting our presidents when they come here. He said, I'm a human rights fighter. I want to make sure they're comfortable because they're going to come here in a really one after the other. It's happening all over the world. It's going to happen in Nigeria. And the two of us, <clears throat> and the two of us are going to join hands for the final battle, the battle for the ordinary, the common man who has been betrayed by leadership along that same axis, which I delineated at the very beginning. So enjoy the literature that has come out of that. There is even more, and more telling, that will come out of the experience that this continent is going to undergo during the next half, not even a full decade, during the next decade. The movement has already begun and it will now be stopped.